Section 52 of East Lynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. East Lynn by Mrs. Henry Wood. Chapter 40 The Justice Room. Part 2. What boy was that? The one who came for you? It was Mother Whiteman's little son. And Captain Thorne then gave you this version of the tragedy? It was the right version, resentfully spoke Affy. How do you know that? Oh, because I'm sure it was. Who else would kill him but Richard Hare? It is a scandalous shame. You're wanting to put it upon Thorne. Look at the prisoner, Sir Francis Levison. Is it he whom you knew as Thorn? Yes, but that does not make him guilty of the murder. Of course it does not, complacently assented Lawyer Ball. How long did you remain with Captain Thorn in London upon that little visit, you know? Appy started like anybody moonstruck. When you quitted this place after the tragedy, it was to join Captain Thorn in London. How long, I ask, did you remain with him? Entirely a random shaft, this. But Richard had totally denied to Lawyer Ball the popular assumption that Affy had been with him. Who says I was with him? Who says I went after him? flashed Affy, with scarlet cheeks. I do, replied Lawyer Ball, taking notes of her confusion. Come, it's over and done with. It's of no use to deny it now. We all go upon visits to friends sometimes. I never heard anything so bold, cried Appy. Where will you tell me I went next? You are upon your oath, woman, again interposed Justice Hare, and a trembling as of agitation might be detected in his voice, in spite of its ringing severity. Were you with the prisoner, Levison, or were you with Richard Hare? I with Richard Hare, cried Appy, agitated in her turn, and shaking like an aspen leaf, partly with discomfiture, partly with unknown dread. How dare that cruel falsehead be brought up again to my face? I never saw Richard Hare after the night of the murder. I swear it. I swear that I never saw him since. Visit him. I'd sooner visit Calcraft the hangman. There was truth in the words, in the tone. The chairman let fall the hand which had been raised to his face, holding on his eyeglasses, and a sort of self-condemning fear arose, confusing his brain. His son, proved innocent of one part, might be proved innocent of the other, and then how would his own harsh conduct show out? West Lynne, in its charity, the justice in his, had cast more odium to Richard, with regard to his after-conduct touching this girl, than it had on the score of the murder. Come, said Lawyer Ball, in a coaxing tone, let us be pleasant. Of course you were not with Richard Hare. West Lynne is always ill-natured. You were on a visit to Captain Thorne, as, as any other lady might be, 
Afy hung her head, cowed down to abject meekness. Answer the question, came forth the chairman's voice again. Were you with Thorn? Yes, though the answer was feeble enough. Mr. Ball coughed an insinuating cough. Did you remain with him, say, two or three years? Not three. A little over two, perhaps. There was no harm in it, shrieked Afy, with a catching sob of temper. If I chose to live in London, and he chose to make a morning call upon me, now and then, as an old friend, what's that to anybody? Where was the harm, I ask? "'Certainly, where was the harm? "'I am not insinuating any,' returned Lawyer Ball, "'with a wink of the eye furthest from the witness and the bench. "'And during the time that, "'that he was making these little morning calls upon you, "'did you know him to be Levison?' "'Yes, I knew him to be Captain Levison then. "'Did he ever tell you why he had assumed the name of Thorn?' Only for a whim, he said, the day he spoke to me in the pastry-cook's shop at Swainson, something came over him, in the spur of the moment, not to give his right name, so he gave the first that came into his head. He never thought to retain it, or that other people would hear of him by it. I dare say not, laconically spoke Lawyer Ball. Well, Miss Appy, I believe that is all for the present. I want Ebenezer James in again, he whispered to an officer of the justice room as the witness retired. Ebenezer James reappeared and took Appy's place. You informed their worships just now that you had met Thorn in London some eighteen months subsequent to the murder, begun Lawyer Ball, launching another of his shafts. This must have been during the period of Appy Hallijohn's sojourn with him. Did you also see her? Mr. Ebenser opened his eyes. He knew nothing of the evidence just given by Appy, and wondered how on earth it had come out that she had been with Thorn at all. He had never betrayed it. Appy, stammered he. Yes, Appy, sharply returned the lawyer. Their worships know that when she took that trip of hers from West Lynne, it was to join Thorn, not Richard Hare, though the latter has borne the credit of it. I ask you, did you see her, for she was then still connected with him? Well, yes, I did, replied Mr. Ebenzer, his own scruples removed, but wondering still how it had been discovered unless Appy had, as he had prophesied she would, let out in her tantrums. In fact, it was Appy whom I first saw. State the circumstances. I was up Paddington Way one afternoon, and saw a lady going into a house. It was Appy Hallijohn. She lived there, I found, had the drawing-room apartments. She invited me to stay to tea with her, and I did. Did you see Captain Levison there? I saw Thorn, as I thought him to be. Appy told me I must be away by eight o'clock, for she was expecting a friend who sometimes came to sit with her for an hour's chat. But, 
In talking over old times, not that I could tell her much about West Lynne, for I had left it almost as long as she had, the time slipped on past the hour. When Effie found that out, she hurried me off, and I had barely got outside the gate when a cab drove up, and Thorn alighted from it, and let himself in with a latch key. That is all I know. When you knew that the scandal of Appy's absence rested on Richard Hare, why could you not have said this, and cleared him on your return to West Lynne? It was no affair of mine that I should make it public. Appy asked me not to say I had seen her, and I promised her I would not. As to Richard Hare, a little extra scandal on his back was nothing, while there remained on it the worst scandal of murder. Stop a bit, interposed Mr. Rubiny, as the witness was about to retire. You speak of the time being eight o'clock in the evening, sir. Was it dark? Yes. Then how can you be certain it was Thorn who got out of the cab and entered? I am quite certain. There was a gas lamp right at the spot, and I saw him as well as I should have seen him in daylight. I knew his voice, too. Could have sworn to it anywhere. And I would almost have sworn to him by his splendid diamond ring. It flashed in the lamplight. His voice. Did he speak to you? No, but he spoke to the cabman. There was a half-dispute between them. The man said Thorn had not paid him enough that he had not allowed for having been kept waiting twenty minutes on the road. Thorn swore at him a bit, and then flung him an extra shilling. The next witness was a man who had been groomed to the late Sir Peter Levison. He testified that the prisoner, Francis Levison, had been on a visit to his master late in the summer and part of the autumn, the year that Hallijohn was killed that he frequently rode out in the direction of West Lynne, especially toward evening, would be away three or four hours, and come home with the horse in a foam. Also that he picked up two letters at different times, which Mr. Levison had carelessly let fall from his pocket, and returned them to him. Both the notes were addressed, Captain Thorne, but they had not been through the post, for there was no further superscription on them, and the writing looked like a lady's. He remembered quite well hearing of the murder of Hallijohn, the witness added, in answer to a question, it made a great stir throughout the country. It was just at that same time that Mr. Levison concluded his visit and returned to London. A wonderful memory! Mr. Rubiny sarcastically remarked. The witness, a quiet, respectable man, replied that he had a good memory, but that circumstances had impressed upon it, particularly the fact that Mr. Levison's departure followed close upon the murder of Hallijohn. One day, when Sir Peter was round at the stables, gentlemen, he was urging his nephew to prolong his visit and asked what sudden freak was taking him off. Mr. Levison replied that unexpected business called him to London. 
While they were talking, the coachman came up, all in a heat, telling that Hallijohn of West Lynne had been murdered by young Mr. Hare. I remember Sir Peter said he could not believe it, and that it must have been an accident, not murder. Is that all? There was more said. Mr. Levison, in a shameful sort of manner, asked his uncle, would he let him have five or ten pounds? Sir Peter seemed angry, and asked, what had he done with the fifty-pound note he had made him a present of, only the previous morning? Mr. Levison replied that he had sent that away to a brother officer, to whom he was in debt. Sir Peter refused to believe it, and said he had more likely squandered it upon some disgraceful folly. Mr. Levison denied that he had, but he looked confused. Indeed, his matter altogether was confused that morning. Did he get the five or ten pounds? I don't know, gentlemen. I dare say he did, for my master was as persuadable as a woman, though he'd fly out a bit sometimes at first. Mr. Levison departed for London that same night. The last witness called was Mr. Dill. On the previous Tuesday evening, he had been returning home from spending an hour at Mr. Beauchamp's, when, in a field opposite to Mr. Justice Hare's, he suddenly heard a commotion. It arose from the meeting of Sir Francis Levison and Otway Bethel. The former appeared to have been enjoying a solitary moonlight ramble, and the latter to have encountered him unexpectedly. Words ensued. Bethel accused Sir Francis of shirking him. Sir Francis answered angrily that he knew nothing of him, and nothing he wanted to know. "'You were glad enough to know something of me the night of Hallijohn's murder,' retorted Bethel to this. "'Do you remember that I could hang you? One little word from me, and you'd stand in Dick Hare's place.' "'You fool!' passionately cried Sir Francis. You couldn't hang me without putting your own head in a noose. Did you not have your hush money? Are you wanting to do me out of more? A cursed paltry note of fifty pounds, foamed Otway Bethel, which, many a time since, I have wished my fingers were blown off before they touched. I never should have touched it, but that I was altogether overwhelmed with the moment's confusion. I have not been able to look Mrs. Hare in the face since, knowing that I held the secret that would save her son from the hangman. And put yourself in his place, sneered Sir Francis. No, put you. That's as it might be. But if I went to the hangman, you would go with me. There would be no excuse or escape for you. You know it. The warfare continued longer, but this was the cream of it. Mr. Dill heard the whole, and repeated it now to the magistrate. Mr. Rubiny protested that it was inadmissible. Hearsay evidence. Contrary to the law, but the bench oracularly put Mr. Rubiny down, and told him, they did not want any stranger to come there and teach them their business. 
Colonel Bethel had leaned forward at the conclusion of Mr. Dill's evidence, dismay on his face, agitation in his voice. Are you sure that you made no mistake, that the other in this interview was Otway Bethel? Mr. Dill sadly shook his head. Am I one to swear to a wrong man, Colonel? I wish I had not heard it save that it may be the means of clearing Richard Hare. Sir Francis Levison had braved out the proceedings with the haughty, cavalier air, his delicate hands and his diamond ring remarkably conspicuous. Was that stone the real thing, or a false one, substituted for the real? Hard up as he had long been for money, the suspicion might arise— a derisive smile crossed his features at parts of the evidence, as much as to say, you may convict me as to Mademoiselle Affy, but you can't as to the murder. When, however, Mr. Dill's testimony was given, what a change was there. His mood tamed down to what looked like abject fear, and he shook in his shoes as he stood. Of course, your worships, will take bail for Sir Francis, said Mr. Rubiny, at the close of the proceedings. Bail? The bench looked at one another. Your worships will not refuse it. A gentleman in Sir Francis Levison's position? The bench thought they never had so insolent an application made to them. Bail for him, on this charge? No not if the Lord Chancellor himself came down to offer it. Mr. Otway Bethel, conscious, probably, that nobody would offer bail for him, not even the Colonel, did not ask the bench to take it. So the two were fully committed to take their trial for the willful murder, otherwise the killing and slaying of George Hallijohn, and before night would be on their road to the county prison at Lynnborough. And that vain, ill-starred Affy, what of her? Well, Affy had retreated to the witness-room again, after giving evidence, and there she remained to the close, agreeably occupied in a mental debate. What would they make out from her admission regarding her sojourn to London, and the morning calls? How would that precious West Lynne construe it? She did not much care. She would brave it out, and assail them with towering indignation, did any dare to cast a stone at her. Such was her final decision, arrived just as the proceedings terminated. Affy was right glad to remain where she was, till some of the bustle had gone. How was it ended? asked she of Mr. Ball, who, being a bachelor, was ever regarded with much graciousness by Affy, for she kept her eyes open to contingencies, although Mr. Joe Giffen was held in reserve. They are both committed for willful murder, off to Lynnborough within an hour. Affy's colour rose. What a shame to commit two innocent men upon such a charge. I can tell you what, Miss Affy, the sooner you disabuse your mind of that prejudice, the better. Levison has been as good as proved guilty today, 
but if proof were wanting, he and Bethel have criminated each other. When rogues fall out, honest men get their own. Not that I can quite fathom Bethel's share in the exploit, though I can pretty well guess at it. And in proving themselves guilty, they have proved the innocence of Richard Hare. Affy's face was changing to whiteness, her confident air to one of dread, her vanity to humiliation. It can't be true, she gasped. It's true enough. The part you have hitherto ascribed to Thorn was enacted by Richard Hare. He heard the shot from his place in the wood, and saw Thorn run, ghastly, trembling, horrified, from his wicked work. Believe me, it was Thorn who killed your father. Affy grew cold as she listened. That one awful moment, when conviction that his words were true, forced itself upon her, was enough to sober her for a whole lifetime. Thorn! Her sight failed, her head reeled, her very heart turned to sickness. One struggling cry of pain, and for the second time that day, Affy Hallijohn fell forward in a fainting fit. Shouts, hisses, execrations, yells. The prisoners were being brought forth to be conveyed to Lynborough. A whole posse of constables was necessary to protect them against the outbreak of the mob, which outbreak was not directed against Otway Bethel, but against Sir Francis Levison. Cowering like the guilty culprit that he was, shivered he, hiding his white face, wondering whether it would be a repetition of Justice Hare's green pond, or tearing him asunder piecemeal, and cursing the earth because it did not open and let him in. End of chapter 40, part 2